That is uh, Utah Phillips with uh, Ani DeFranco from uh, the Fellow Workers CD. Uh, the track, of course, Direct Action. Something uh, my guest this morning knows a lot about. Uh, Keith McHenry helped start the global movement, a global movement, Food Not Bombs, in 1980. And uh, he co-wrote the book, Food Not Bombs, How to Feed the Hungry and Build Community which has been published in four languages. He spent over 500 nights in jail for his human rights work. He was tortured and declared a prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International. Two of the movements he helped start, Food Not Bombs and Indie Media, are listed on the FBI's terrorist watch list. And as hard as I've tried, I can't seem to make it on that list. Uh, the past two years, he's visited Food Not Bombs chapters and worked with activists in Africa, Europe, Asia, and the Middle East, and North America. And uh, Food Not Bombs groups are uh, in uh, cities throughout the country, if not the world, yet uh, they continue to be threatened with arrest uh, simply for feeding people. And uh, here to talk about Food Not Bombs, Civil Liberties, being a uh, prisoner of conscience and more is Keith McHenry. And he joins us on the line this morning. Uh, Keith, you with us? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. This is, uh, I'm really thrilled about, uh, about you having an opportunity to tell your story. So uh, you're in New Mexico right now, is that correct? Yeah, I live in uh, Taos, New Mexico. How is the weather right, th right uh, now? And it's been uh, kind of an incredibly warm it's uh for, it, we had two snowstorms but now it's like i've uh, been in the 70s the last two days so well pretty amazing well uh thanks for being with us uh why don't we begin by jumping right into it how uh how did you get involved in in activism and specifically in the idea of food not bombs where'd that come from well i was working um in with clamshell alliance to shut down the seabrook nuclear power plant and we had two large direct actions um, where our idea was that we would try to climb the fences of the construction site and occupy the site so they couldn't keep building. And this is a power plant just north of Boston. And um, at the second large action that I was involved in, in May 24, 1980, uh, one of our my friends, Brian Figenbaum, was arrested for uh, assaulting a police officer. And the reality was he was in the media collective and had been a spokesperson, so his name was on TV, and the police could positively identify him and chose him as the person who supposedly threw a gaff hook over the fence. And um, in trying to organize for his legal defense, we were cooking brownies and cookies and had, trying to raise money. He was a, a law student, and he was going to uh, possibly, you know, hopefully graduate and become a lawyer. And this felony charges was a real problem for him. So to raise money for his legal defense, we sold these baked goods, but had very little success. And um, we just, well, at the same time, we actually had this little moving company because we had a van that we were using to, to do stuff. And we got a poster call. Wouldn't it be a beautiful day to, if the Pentagon had to hold a bake sale to buy a B-1 bomber? And that gave us the idea that we should dress like generals and stand on the street corner selling our baked goods and telling people who are trying to buy a B-1 bomber as a way of getting people's attention. And that worked really well. So the next action we decided to do was pretend like we were a soup kitchen in the Great Depression outside the Bank of Boston uh, stockholders meeting and pressure them because they were the, the board directors of the bank were also on the 
board of directors of the company building the nuclear power plant. And we thought, uh, well, this sounds like the kind of crooked deals that happened that led to the Great Depression. And we'll dress as hobos and have the soup kitchen and do the street theater as the stockholders go in. And the night before, we became concerned there wouldn't be enough people to look like a soup line and that it would not be clear what we were trying to say. So we spoke to homeless men at the Pine Street Inn who then agreed to join us, and um, uh, partially because they really there's no daily food in, uh, in the middle of the day in, in Boston at that time, but also because they wanted to participate in a protest, and a lot of them had been uh, activists in the 60s and so on, from having come back from the Vietnam War. And that's how we started, and that first day was so exciting, we just decided to use food as part of their street performance and to advocate for um, uh, basically that everybody could, there's plenty of food, that everybody would have enough to eat, and that you could make whole foods, it could be organic, it could be vegetarian, and we tried to link all the different social issues. At that time, we had the nuclear arms race, which was, of course, still happening today, nuclear power, the war in El Salvador, and... Um, and uh, there were restrictive laws against, like, battered women's shelters, things like that. And we tried to connect all those issues. And at the same time, we were providing food to housing projects and daycare centers and showing that this huge amount of wasted food could be collected and actually provide for hungry and, uh, and poor people. So. Well, let's talk about that because I think listeners, I mean, certainly listeners of this program are at least familiar with Food Not Bombs. We've had uh, some of the the uh, activists from some of the local chapters uh, on this program in the past. But uh, for the casual listener, um, someone might think that it takes an enormous amount of money. You know, where does one get all of this food to be able to feed the homeless? And yet Food Not Bombs has that really unique perspective of um, being aware of the amount of waste that, uh, that takes place each and every day. So how did you come up with the idea of um, reclaiming food, if you will, and exactly, you know, for someone listening, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more later about how to start a Food Not Bombs chapter, but uh, for someone wanting to know, how do you make that initial um, approach to a, a produce store or, or, or something, how did you go about doing all of that? Well, at the time, um, I was a produce worker at Bread and Circus, which was one of the early kind of... Um, stores that, like we have now, Whole Foods and those kind of commercial organic produce uh, or, you know, food stores. And every day I would throw out lots and lots of, of produce. And so I ended up talking to this man um, that was working at a Catholic worker shelter and said, hey, why don't um, we give you some of the food um, because rather than just throwing it away. And that's how I became acquainted with this organizing, getting food donated rather than having to uh, dumpster dive, which I actually had done before as well. As a, you know, um, well, we were like, we, you know, we were really homeless people, but we were kind of hippies is what we were thinking of. And um, so I knew about that. And I then, um, because also I knew about the food distribution system, being as a produce worker, I knew that there are produce warehouses that where we got our food and that those people also had food to throw away and that there was Haymarket um, uh, Square in Bo downtown Boston. At the end of the market, they threw tons, literally filled like 10, 15 um, dump trucks full of, of perfectly edible food. And so we also knew daily there were bakeries, bagel places that had food. 
that was how we get our food. So we really started, with, I was 23 years old when I started Food Not Bombs, and it, um, we had no money. We were just like a, you know, as minimum wage worker at this grocery store. And it was no time at all. We had so much food. Every single day we'd fill our van completely with food that then we would distribute that day because we didn't have refrigeration and that kind of um, uh, equipment. And that was one of the reasons we stuck to vegetarian food is that it was much safer and easier to distribute without needing to spend t thousands and thousands of dollars on, on steam tables and, and um, walk-in refrigerators and so on. Of course, it also fits nicely into uh, a lot of progressive politics in terms of being better for the environment, uh, in terms of the amount of land and water required for uh, meat uh, grazing and, and so forth, as well as you know, those who take issue with, with violence of any kind. Right. This we felt that it was really core to show that we were against violence in all ways, including violence against animals, and that we also, uh, you know, eating an unhealthy diet is essentially violence against yourself. And in 1980, when we were starting to do this, it was, uh, you know, vegetarianism and particularly, I don't even think people used the word vegan at the time, um, was very unusual. And part of our effort was to stand out on the streets and just hand out free vegetarian food so people would learn that that was... Uh, like you say, it takes 50, uh, there's like 50 acres less um, land to grow, to grow vegetarian meals than it does to raise beef cattle. It saves a lot of water. It's much more efficient and, 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 um, and overall much healthier to have such a diet. And we wanted to show the connections between both the corporate exploitation and, and this horrible junk food that was starting to really get to be out of hand in 1980, and uh, fast food chains, McDonald's. We were like one of the earliest groups to have a consistent effort uh, against McDonald's for many reasons, both environmental, labor practices, and the whole like kind of corporate domination that, that McDonald's um, is involved in. And that actually placed us early on in the movement uh, against the globalization of, um, of the economy. And in 1997, we organized a tour visiting 60 cities in the U.S. Uh, where we were advocating, it was called the Unfree, uh, the, uh, Unfree Trade Tour, and it was calling on activists to unite and protest against the World Trade Organization if it ever came to North America. And as people are aware, it did come to Seattle, and our action there was huge. Mm. And I want to remind listeners, turn to KUCI and Irvine, this is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Keith McHenry. He is, uh, among other things, the uh, the author of Food, Not, or the co-author, I should say, of Food Not Bombs, How to Feed the Hungry and Build Community. Where did uh, the name Food Not Bombs come from? Who came up with that? Well, there was three of us, Brian, C.T., and myself, who were going around at night doing graffiti all over the Boston area um, against um, the arms race. And we would do these things like dead bodies where we'd lay it, trace ourselves in chalk and, and spray paint um, a white outline giving the, kind of the effect that a lot of people were killed in a certain plaza. And the other thing that we did was had graffiti outside of grocery stores, and the food was very expensive at that time relative to other uh, things people needed to buy. And so we would write food, not bombs, outside of the exits of the, all the uh, large chain grocery stores. And um, we thought at one point, wow, that would make a lot of sense to use our slogan, 
the name of a group. That way, the message would get across uh, what we're working towards without us having to spend a lot of um, time talking to people as to um, why. And it would encourage people to ask us, you know, why are we organizing for food and not for bombs, and to try to really get the idea across that there's plenty of money, that no one in America, let alone the world, needs to go hungry, that it's, um, and it's an issue of politics and distribution, and that, um, that we can meet everyone's needs, not only with uh, food, but also with housing, education, medical care. All of that's possible, and we actually don't get to have those things specifically because we spend billions and billions of dollars on, on the military, and you know, even one or two less B-1 bombers would provide so much funding. Uh, so even... Uh, you know, even if we still had a very large military in the U.S., just a little bit of money diverted from the military towards human needs would actually provide a lot more national security than all this money being spent on, on you know, cruise missiles and so on. It's really a, a, a brilliant uh, little little slogan or catchphrase. You know, I've been, uh, I watch the, uh, I don't have cable, so I, I get to avoid Fox and CNN and so forth, but I do watch... Uh, meet the press every Sunday. I suppose I'm guilty of it. And it's so interesting that when uh, Tim Russert or whoever the guest host happens to be, uh, when the host is interviewing uh, congressional or senatorial candidates, the question is always, what are you going to do to balance the budget and to cut the deficit? And the person will say, well, I'll do this, that, and the other. And the host says, well, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to cut some social, social service in order to balance the budget. Never is uh, cuts to the Pentagon budget ever on the table, never is a cut to military spending on the table. It's just thought of as, as just off limits, the third rail for, uh, you know, for those who, who understand the reference. Um, I always use the third rail, and people in California don't understand what that means. Um, but, right, <laughs> but, yeah, because we don't have any subways. subways. But, um, but um, people don't see the connection that we could either be paying to provide people with food, or we could be paying to build bombs. It's such a straightforward equation, and it's just unfortunate that that people don't see it as such. Well, the, what, the one thing that I find interesting is um, when we were arrested, we were arrested over a thousand times in San Francisco in the 80s and 90s, as you had said in the introduction. And the internal police memos, they knew that part of the pro the reason that they needed to arrest us and try to silence us um, was because of our message. It wasn't because we were giving away free food, and they made a big point about that. It was that we were making a political statement, and, that, and they said that's not allowed, even though allegedly there's the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and also the uh, right to free speech and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But the, um, the, they were concerned that the... Um, you know, that the corporations that built bombs and Chevron and, and Bechtel in particular in, in San Francisco and Bank of America would be um, that their ability to profit would be threatened because we would influence the public to demand that more money be spent on human needs and not on the military. And their internal police memos state that clearly, that that is why um, we are considered a terrorist threat. That it's um, you know, that's not like just a, uh, you know, an accident that we're on the terrorist watch list, and um, because from their point of view, our ability to communicate this 
simple message to a mass population in such a clear way where it becomes so obvious that, yeah, we should be spending money on human needs and not on the military, could be so popular that it would force the corporations uh, that are building bombs uh, to actually reduce their amount of uh, manufacturing and so on in that area. And never, um, and the, the thing that's really crazy is we've been working on the issue of conversion ever since 1980, which is that these same corporations could actually get money from the U.S. government for building stuff that was helping people. And um, apparently that is not anywhere nearly as profitable as, as weapons. And therefore, it's not something that uh, that, they're, that they want to really do. And therefore, we are threatening their security as uh, weapons manufacturers. Well, let's explore some of the uh, the legal issues that uh, that you faced. Uh, certainly, you you mentioned the arrests that, uh, at least uh, internally, uh, was mentioned as you know threatening corporate profiteering, but. Uh, Listeners might find it strange that people would be arrested simply for feeding the homeless, but uh, we know about the so-called quality of life initiatives or ordinances that uh, have particularly become popular ever since the uh, emergence of the, the so-called broken windows theory, uh, James Q. Wilson, George Kelling, uh, in, uh, 19, first appearing in 1982. Um, I know you were very active in San Francisco around the time of uh, a program titled, uh, was it Project Matrix, I believe? Yeah, it was Quality of Life Enforcement Matrix program. So, and, yeah, that was very related to the broken windows theory, and I first became um, directly uh, um, in confrontation with that in Boston, actually, and uh, even in uh, when the World Series was happening and the, the Boston Red Sox were in the World Series, uh, the uh, chief of police came and spoke to the Merchants Association that I was a member of and said that, well, you have to get rid of the bums and the poor because that's why the neighborhood is going down and you're not profiting enough. And um, I actually, as a merchant, uh, resisted that and uh, um, said that that, you know, that that was not right and organized homeless people and others to resist this whole ideology. That was like in 1986, I believe. Then the Matrix program in San Francisco was the one that was adopted both by like the mayor of Moscow, Russia, and by uh, Rudy Giuliani um, also like adopted that policy in other cities. And that um, continues to this day where there's uh, been laws, for instance, just passed this summer in Las Vegas, Nevada, and Orlando, Florida, outline uh, free the distribution of free food as part of an overall effort to drive the homeless out of sight in those two cities. And and that's what's key is that their claim, you know, the claims of, of Giuliani, uh, you know, certainly when he was uh, in New York and uh, was it uh, Mayor Logan, is that correct? Um, but Jordan, Frank Jordan. Jordan, 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 Mayor yeah, Jordan, Frank the Jordan. chief of police of, of San Francisco and then won the... Um, election to mayor on an uh, anti-homeless campaign. He said he would get rid of the homeless if elected mayor, and then his, to fill his promise, he came up with this program uh, called The Matrix. Well, and what, what I find interesting about it is that these 
if one takes them at their word, they're claiming that they simply want the homeless to go to shelters. And so their objective is uh, in keeping with the idea that when one sees a homeless person, one uh, is fearful, crime goes up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they simply wanted to remove homeless from public sight. And so the crackdown was a crackdown on anybody who would give money to panhandlers or give food to panhandlers uh, because that encourages homeless people to remain visible on the streets. Yet the strategy prevents people uh, such as you and those in, in the Catholic Worker Movement or Food Not Bombs from, uh, as Utah Phillips mentioned in the intro, engaging in direct action. It's another way that the ordinances make people dependent upon governments and so-called charities rather than cutting out the middleman, which is a very anarchist principle, and engaging in direct action oneself. Could you maybe expand on that? Or Yeah, the, um, in fact, you know, the, when we first were arrested in San Francisco, they approached Glide Memorial Church and uh, Cecil Williams to start a, a panel to discuss the uh, outdoor food service. And after about six months, Cecil Williams, uh, uh, Reverend Williams, said, well, it was immoral to feed the homeless outside uh, in city parks. And then subsequently, later that week, had a, his annual uh, chicken dinner in the park. Um, so the, the, and the, they also, like, the, we were provi providing them with our leftover. With a, we had so much uh, free produce and stuff, we would deliver it to their shelter. Then they uh, refused to accept it at that time and became actively involved with the city in uh, trying to get our food before we got it um, and making these statements against us. And the same uh, Salvation Army, actually, uh, the head of the Salvation Army in San Francisco is quoted in the Examiner and uh, Chronicle both as saying that um, Food Not Bombs is a leadership necessary for the insurrection of the poor. And they had a policy where they would set up a, they would set up next to Food Not Bombs during Christmas time, particularly, and um, tell all the homeless people that they would not be given a a, a, a ticket for the lottery to the, their shelter if they were seen eating at Food Not Bombs. So they've uh, took an active role in, uh, and in many cities, both the food local food banks and uh, Salvation Armies and other such. Uh, organizations actively try to interfere with Food Not Bombs' ability to, to organize. And one, we have a big debate often in, within the Food Not Bombs community itself amongst the wealthier sort of uh, volunteers versus some of the others. Um, it's, it can cross uh, class lines, actually, too, about whether we, it's more important to get the food out to people or more important to organize for social change. And I've been homeless four times myself. And my feeling is it would be better to organize a society where no one was homeless rather than to focus only on uh, making sure the food is, is out. And this question comes up often where city governments will approach Food Not Bombs chapters in the U.S., that is. It's not, it doesn't happen so much outside the United States. And say, well, if you just, if you just change your name and don't, uh, uh, you know, and, and don't bring out a banner or literature, then the police won't bother you, and then that way you'll be able to feed everybody. Now, that kind of misses the point. The whole point is to change society so there aren't homeless people, unless people want to be homeless, and that everybody has their needs met, and that, that people aren't criminalized just because 
they uh, have ended up on the streets. And, you know, my case is probably typical of many people in America that have become homeless. I became chronically ill, um, lost my job, lost my health insurance, and then shortly after that lost my home and lived on the street. This is like... Um, very, very common in the United States. So, for instance, if you wanted to end homelessness in America, you would have universal health care. That, um, in countries where there is universal health care, there's very small cases of, of homelessness. And um, another thing is, uh, is um, higher quality education. So the, the literacy in America, I so often run into homeless people eating at Food Not Bombs who can't read. Well, if they were able to read, they would have much better luck at, one, reading, like, job ads and filling out job applications and be much uh, more likely to get employed. And a lot of that is due to um, just the relatively poor quality of education and the lack of funding for education in the United States. So um, it's a backwards way of looking at things. Rather than continuing charity endlessly, um, it's more, it makes more sense to change society so that there is, charity is not necessary. And we're a rich enough country, supposedly the richest in the world, where that should be no problem at all. And it's a matter of redirecting money from the military towards human needs to solve that problem. It would be much more effective than trying to arrest them, put them in jail, hide them, beat them, take their belongings, and make their lives even more miserable. We're speaking with Keith McHenry. He is the founder of uh, Food Not Bombs, co-author of uh, Food Not Bombs, How to Feed the Hungry and Build Community. And uh, I want to make sure we have time to get everything in uh, in terms of how to organize a Food Not Bombs chapter, but I'd be remiss if we didn't uh, spend a minute or two uh, talking about how you became uh, a prisoner of conscience uh, by Amnesty International. Well, what, we were being um, arrested and beaten and, in some cases, um, tortured for serving free food in San Francisco. And, um, and at one point, I ended up being framed on the California Three Strikes Law. In fact, four days after the law had come into effect after uh, voters voted for it and um, faced life in prison. And we did a letter-writing campaign to all the human rights groups. But if I could interrupt, for um, what? Explain. Oh, okay. I was, I was um, attacked by, while making a phone call in uh, City Hall by the mayor's film commissioner, um, Nick Rommel, and uh, charged with assault battery, strong-arm robbery. And then um, I kept getting re-arrested on that charge over and over again. My bail increased over and over repeatedly. And then um, also I ended up, uh, in May, I was handing out literature um, about uh, the attacks on the homeless in City Hall, and a politician's aide slammed a door on me and my friend, and the glass fell out of the door. She was so angry and cut my hand, and I got uh, charged with assault with a deadly weapon, which was supposed to be the glass. And then I had 45 counts of felony conspiracy because there was a court order in San Francisco against um, protesting, uh, if your food not bombs, against transporting food and uh, serving free food to, to homeless people without a permit. And uh, although we applied 136 times for permits to serve free food and had a health permit and bought a million dollars liability insurance every year to protect the city from liability, um, we were still arrested repeatedly. So I had so many felonies, that's why I was facing um, life in pr 25 years to life. And they were all surrounding feeding the homeless and, and having a name like Food Not Bombs. Correct. Uh, each of the frame-ups were directly related. The, for instance, the first one on January 4th, 
um, four days after the law came into effect, I was in a chef's outfit standing in front of City Hall serving free food with a sign that said, uh, Viva, Na uh, Viva Zapatista No Nafta. And this um, irate man came out of front of City Hall and started screaming at me. And I just laughed and ignored him. And he, could, he had, like, all gold stuff all around his neck and everything looked like kind of like a, uh, a golfer. I, wealthy golfer guy, and uh, just ignored him. But then a uh, tow truck came and took my truck out of a legal parking space. So I went into City Hall to make a phone call. And uh, he came into that uh, phone booth and started smashing me against the wall of the phone booth. And, and I just hung up and uh, left and then went to another payphone and, and continued to uh, find where my truck had been towed to. And that's how I got assault, battery, strong-arm robbery. The robbery being allegedly he had a beeper worth $100 and, or $99, and if it had been less than $99, it would not have been a strike felony, and therefore it wouldn't have been part of the three strikes. And so a couple of, after my phone call, I was arrested by some plainclothes police officers in the rotunda of City Hall and, and charged with the three strikes. So was this? Do you suspect that this guy was an undercover cop? This? Oh, he no. He was in the. He was the the. Uh, he was part of this program. He was the film commissioner, but he was also the the mayor's liaison for the Justice Department's program called Community Oriented Policing. And um, all across America, we have this system of uh, where the Justice Department works with private individuals to spy on on one another and to to snitch. This is like a a massive program that's happened since the 80s, although it's picked up even greater under Bush. And we call you often see the Safety Network or, or um, you know, Crime Watch or things like that. Well, that um, those people are actually watching political activists as part of what they do. I mean, they also are doing the other thing, trying to keep your neighborhood safe from people burglarizing houses. But it, very large portion of what they do is is report to the police on the activities of people putting up posters or or doing things like feeding the homeless and so on. And so he was in charge of that program out of the mayor's office. So um, he wasn't really an undercover cop. He just had this, you know, he had worked with the police and the mayor. All discussed how they were going to try to frame me that they'd had enough of my doing what I was doing, and. Um, the FBI was involved in these things, uh, other intelligence agencies, uh, military intelligence, and uh, some of the people involved in, in suppressing us in San Francisco actually had been CIA before becoming uh, uh, involved in the San Francisco Police Intelligence Division, including a famous case of Tom Gerard, who had been trained at Fort Huachuca in Arizona, where the uh, where torture manual comes from and where, where it's the... Uh, um, location where torture, uh, people are trained in torture worldwide. Um, the teachers, for instance, at the School of Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia, get their education at Fort Huachuca in Arizona. And this man was involved in suppressing food not bombs, and they used techniques um, that they learned uh, from the CIA against us, including in my case. They um, would rip, they ripped my ligaments and tendons uh, by lifting me by my arms and legs and smashing me repeatedly uh, face down into the floor of the police station. And uh, then once my they could hear my ligaments and tendons rip, they then put me in a small box, uh, a cage that was four foot by four foot by four foot chain link um, cage that was hung from the ceiling called K-cell in, uh, in the uh, city jail. And they leave me there just uh, in my pants for like three or four days where it would be very cold, 
from being tortured three times by the police intelligence community there in San Francisco. Wow. Well, we uh, are running short on time, and I hate to make the leap from uh, that kind of uh, that kind of anecdote to uh, talking about if people want to become involved in, in Food Not Bombs, but certainly uh, we should point out that there are many chapters of Food Not Bombs that do not receive harassment from local law enforcement. You visited um, you visited Food Not Bombs chapters all across uh, the country, if not the world. Uh, before getting into specifics on how to start a Food Not Bombs chapter, can you at least provide our listeners with some, um, you know, some words of reassurance? And I'll begin by pointing out that here in nice, conservative Orange County, California, we've got a Food Not Bombs chapter in Santa Ana, uh, as well as one in San Clemente. And uh, they have uh, relative uh, success with minimal uh, harassment by uh, law enforcement or local city officials. Yeah, I would say that, in fact, the experience of San Francisco, and part of the reason I hung in there and didn't give up, and that the rest of the activists in San Francisco refused to stop, is that we wanted to send a message to authorities that this kind of brutality doesn't work. And as uh, I think we've been successful, because re- no one has really been beaten and, and injured in any other Food Not Bombs chapter that I'm aware of after San Francisco. And usually cities, when they learn that Food Not Bombs survived what went on in San Francisco and the amount of uh, the $25 million estimated cost to try to stop us, um, according to city supervisors, that it's not worth it to harass us. So in fact, it is quite safe. um, And occasionally people get ticketed for serving free food. But uh, the ACLU, for instance, is actually suing um, the city of Orlando and the city of Las Vegas on our behalf just because of these laws. And um, when we just won a, uh, won a criminal case in Las Vegas for serving free food where the judge thought it was ridiculous and threw it out. So it is very safe. And we've been all, I've been all over the world visiting Food Not Bombs in the Middle East and Africa, a, um, throughout Europe. It's very, very big in, in Russia and uh, Ukraine. And we've been involved in such things as the uh, – overthrow of the government of Ukraine in, in Kiev, where we provided food at a tent city for like uh, several months and in the uh, Orange Revolution. And Food Not Bombs was pivotal in in that revolution, although that's something you probably did not hear, um, uh, even though we were interviewed on NPR, the name Food Not Bombs was not used. Hmm. And um, the, so it's, it's, we have on our website, foodnotbombs.net, there's two different things, and one of the things that we published was called Seven Steps to Starting the Food Not Bombs. And my main focus and a main focus of, of Food Not Bombs is to start groups and to, um, and it's easy to collect the food from grocery stores and bakeries. Um, we usually suggest groups start out one day a week where you, uh, you find the, in your community the, the day, often Sundays, churches don't serve food and, and people go hungry on Sundays. So... Often our first day is to start a, a group that serves every Sunday in a, in a city park where there's a lot of traffic of types of, you know, many classes of people passing by so you can communicate with both, uh, uh, you know, with homeless and non-homeless citizens and talk about these ideas and also take food to the local protests against the war or protests on border issues. Uh, we've been feeding people along, all along the border on uh, uh, along that issue. And... Um, so just by going to foodnotbombs.net, you can get the simple directions 
seven steps to starting food not bombs and then the uh, more complex way is to read our book and to get a copy of our book food not bombs how to feed the hungry and build community and really our biggest focus is on urging people to actually go collect food cook it and serve it and to hand out literature about peace when they're serving free food and it's more about doing and taking action than rather than um as we see with so many other uh, organizations where, you, unfortunately, you spend a lot of time at meetings and not much time actually getting out on the street. And if you are um, approached by the police and so on, it actually can often be a benefit. I know, like, say, in Orlando, they uh, were in Newsweek this week, and we're getting lots of email from around the world from people who read about the law against food, not bombs, that came out, that's uh, reported on in Newsweek. And it they got more volunteers as a result. They got um, uh, they had to add more days of serving, and this is typically what happens: is uh, no one really gets arrested ultimately, or maybe a couple people do temporarily. But you build so much support within your your community that your organization built. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to get harassed by the police. And certainly contact us if you start a food not bombs group. Go to foodnotbombs.net and email us your contact information and what days you serve and where you serve, and we'll post that on the Food Not Bombs website so that people can find you. And in the minute that we have left uh, before uh, we got you on the line, I was uh, telling listeners that uh, Howard Zinn spoke uh, just around the corner from here last night, uh, gave an amazing two-hour address. Uh, halfway through, he looked at his watch and he said, you know what, I don't care how long I've been going on. And he just kept uh, kept speaking. Uh, Howard Zinn wrote the introduction to your book, and uh, you actually have a long history with Howard Zinn. I'd love it if you could uh, just conclude by uh, telling listeners uh, your relationship with Howard Zinn. Yeah, well, I first uh, met um, Howard Zinn both in Clamshell Alliance protesting to stop Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant, and he was also my um, professor of American history in... Um, at Boston University, and I was a painting student and sculpture student at Boston University when he was teaching there. And we um, then, he actually um, included um, Food Not Bombs and myself in his book, A People's History of the United States, and uh, talks about our struggle in San Francisco. And when I faced life in prison, he organized a uh, press conference in San Francisco with uh, Ron Kovic, who is author of Born on the Fourth of July, and Starhawk, the author of uh, Walking to Mercury and, and uh, a number of other popular books. And, uh, and then he also worked with us to try to get the Justice Department to send federal marshals to stop us from being, stop the San Francisco police from arresting us. And in part, that is why Amnesty came to our aid and why the United Nations Human Rights Commission supported Food Not Bombs is because the Clinton administration sent a letter saying that they would do nothing to interfere with the police violence against Food Not Bombs. And uh, we'd provide them with wiretap memos, internal police memos, and videos of the violence. And yet the Clinton administration um, you know, so said that they supported the activities of the San Francisco Police Department and would do nothing to interfere with their uh, human rights violations. So Zinn played a key role in that. And uh, he's also supported us many, many other times since then, including he's uh, been interviewed on a documentary that is coming out in the next uh, year or so about food not bombs around the world. Well, the book is Food Not Bombs, How to Feed the Hungry and Build Community, and the website is foodnotbombs.net. 
Uh, Keith McHenry, I want to uh, thank you so much for being with us and uh, let listeners know that if they're interested in this topic in just about four minutes, The Politics of Food, isn't this a great lead-in? Wow. The, sh the show following us is titled The Politics of Food, where, uh, where Joy tackles such issues as uh, genetically modified foods, veganism, and uh, so many other things. So it's uh, a great morning here at KUCI and Keith McHenry. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Great. Thanks for having us. And everyone, please visit our website, foodbombs.net. And uh, thank you so much. Take care. Great. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.